Welcome to part three of our story. We know it has not been easy so far. Up to this point, you've heard depressing news after depressing news. You learn about a mega bank dominating our electric grid to extract wealth and leave our community powerless. You've learned about El Paso's fossil fuel crisis and our connection to the most dangerous fracking powerhouse for the climate. You've learned that our current local government is corrupted by forces of greed and collusion, choosing profit over people. You have heard the heartbreak of our community. But you have also heard resilience and hope. Although we're facing some very powerful monsters, we are not backing down. We see this campaign for the Climate Charter as an extension of the work we started two years ago, where we have spent the last two years desperately fighting back against the megabanks and gas plants and the fracking industry, the Climate Charter is different. Here we are playing offense. Instead of saying no to corporations attacking us, we're saying yes to a future we're imagining for ourselves. In this episode, we will do a deep dive into the policy of the Climate Charter. So far, you have heard a solid overview of the political framework, which can be summarized in five points. First, that the policy is a fundamental shift in our local government's legal duties to prioritize clean energy, green jobs, and a democratic utility grid. Secondly, the Charter will establish a climate department headed by a climate director tasked with accomplishing these goals. Third, the Charter protects and conserves our precious desert water by legally preventing any fracking corporation from our neighboring Permian Basin from purchasing any of our city's water. Fourth, that the Charter aims to increase our solar energy usage as much as possible through developing these programs at local buildings, including schools. Fifth, that the Climate Charter aims to establish new green jobs for our community, bumping our city's renewable energy usage from 5% to 100% will require lots of work after all. However, the details of the Climate Charter policy framework are much more deeper and much more powerful. It is more than a band-aid fix to a gushing wound. It is a formidable movement weapon that our community can aim to our polluters. It has the power and potential to serve as deep roots for a climate revolution at the borderland. To launch this policy discussion, we'll talk about the difference between a city charter and a city ordinance. Why did we aim to squeeze through a charter amendment through the tedious and disenfranchising ballot system instead of a mere ordinance? By sheer will, force, organization, and signatures of voters, we can transform the government without needing politicians. There is something inherently powerful about that. We are bringing direct democracy into the political arena of the climate crisis. There are different levels of transformation you can bring to the local government. One level of change is passing a city ordinance. This is easier to establish and requires less signatures on a ballot initiative, but it is also easier for an antagonistic set of city council members to undo. A charter, on the other hand, requires more signatures, but is much more difficult to undo, even if we have an unfriendly El Paso Electric captured city government. Section 9.1 of the Climate Charter spells out a policy statement which all of city council is legally required to oblige to. 
It reads, quote, It is the policy of the city of El Paso to use all available resources and authority to accomplish three goals of paramount importance. First, to reduce the city's contribution to climate change. Second, to invest in an environmentally sustainable future. And third, to advance the cause of climate justice. This is huge. One of the main reasons that El Paso Electric was able to ram through both a JP Morgan takeover and a $160 million gas plant expansion within the span of two years is because they strategically and effectively convinced elected representatives that they held no authority. If passed, it will now be a legal obligation for the city of El Paso to combat El Paso Electric and their pollute and profit schemes which harm the planet. One thing you'll notice throughout this episode's discussion is that the language of the climate charter is informed by our experience fighting El Paso Electric in previous campaigns. We have learned how they operate and we are using this against them. Section 9.2 of the climate charter clearly lays out the definitions of important key terms for the remainder of the political framework. This is important because we wrote the charter specifically to prevent El Paso Electric from using loopholes that allow for them to escape regulation. The definitions we detail include climate change, climate jobs, climate impact statement, fossil fuel industry, and clean renewable energy. One important thing to point out here is our definition of clean renewable energy. This is where we will take a brief moment to discuss hydrogen energy. With overwhelming resistance to fossil fuels from the general public, quote-unquote hydrogen has been one of the fossil fuels' greatest deceptions on the public. Here I quote from a study called Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change. Hydrogen is much hyped as if it was a clean energy source. However, it is not really an energy source at all. It cannot be mined or obtained without stripping it off of hydrocarbons. In the U.S., 95% of hydrogen is produced from natural gas, a fossil fuel. Schemes to make hydrogen from coal, oil, biomass, landfill gas, and even nuclear power threaten to tie hydrogen to other dirty energy sources. What is described in this report is exactly what El Paso Electric is attempting to do in our community. They are planning to claim dirty fracked gas is clean by processing it through hydrogen. In September of 2021, El Paso Electric released their Renewable Generation Study, a breadcrumb concession they offered as part of the J.P. Morgan takeover. The study was meant to determine the feasibility of introducing renewable energy into El Paso's grid. This is a premise which on its face is misleading and disingenuous. Again, we repeat, El Paso is the 10th sunniest city on the planet. In EPE's Renewable Energy Study, El Paso Electric makes the bold claim, Quote, commitment to 80% carbon-free energy by 2035 and the pursuit of 100% decarbonization of our generation portfolio by 2045. That sounds great, doesn't it? Well, there is the slight inconvenience that this is a complete and utter lie. <coughs> El Paso Electric's own integrated resource plan lists the lifespan of each gas plant turbine. According to their own filings, they plan to have the following gas turbines online after 2035. Montana Units 1-4, through 4, Rio Grande Unit 9, Newman Unit 5, and Newman Unit 6. How can they claim to be a 100% carbon-free generation while operating at least 8 gas plant turbines? 
Their plan to greenwash fracked gas as carbon-free by converting the natural gas into hydrogen and claiming it as renewable energy. It is insidious, it's deceitful, it is an example of why the climate charter is necessary for our community. We deserve a local government that bravely stands up to the lies and corruptions of polluters and does not bow down to corporate interests. Section 9.3 outlines the position of the climate director. Quote, the city council, including the mayor and direct representatives, shall appoint a climate director to serve as the lead city representative charged with fulfilling the climate policy. How do we ensure this climate director is an actual climate champion and not a puppet of El Paso Electric? At the end of the day, it will require our grassroots community movement to preserve the integrity of the charter. However, we have included specific policy protections to prevent any fossil fuel puppets from taking over this position. First, if anyone has ever worked in the fossil fuel industry, they are automatically and legally disqualified from being climate director. Any former employee of a fracking company, a gas pipeline executive, a former El Paso electric boss, banned and disqualified. Is this a harsh line in the sand? Hell yeah. And it should stay that way to protect the integrity of the climate charter mission. Secondly, there is an accountability process in place to boot any climate director that betrays the purpose of the climate charter. Quote, the climate directors shall report directly to the city council. The director may be removed by resolution approved by the majority of the total membership of the city council, with or without cause. Section 9.4 of the Climate Charter establishes the Climate Department, which can be, quote, led by the Climate Director and provided with sufficient personnel and resources to carry out the climate policy and related duties, responsibilities herein described, end quote. The provision creates an avenue through which the Climate Director can hire a team of community advocates and experts to breathe into life the spirit of the climate charter and that transition to renewable energy. It creates an avenue for establishing quality green jobs. On the ground, many community members ask whether the climate department will increase their taxes. It does not necessarily. Our taxes are based on El Paso City Council's budget decisions. Currently, El Paso City Council overwhelmingly prioritizes the funding of a militarized and violent El Paso Police Department over the funding of education, health, transportation, or parks and recreation. In 2022, El Paso's general fund expenditures were a total of about $476 million. In 2022, over 34% of this total funding was used to fund the police department. About $161 million in tax dollars for one year's work. This is a number that has steadily increased. Since 2018, City Council has bumped up the police budget from $128 million to $161 million. That's a $33 million increase since 2018. The city of El Paso currently employs about 1,205 cops.
A robust climate department, on the other hand, with only 20 employees, would only be 0.02% the size of our massive police budget. Section 9.5 focuses on climate impacts of important city council decisions. The language reads, the climate director shall provide the city council with a climate impact statement prior to any city council vote affecting the city's climate policy. This is important because polluters like El Paso Electric and Marathon Refinery will no longer be able to quietly sneak climate impacting decisions through the meeting agendas of city council. Section 9.6 relates to tracking climate emissions. It reads, the climate director shall prepare an annual report on climate impacts for the city of El Paso to include all emissions generated within the city limits. Section 9.7 lays out a political framework for the city council to create important climate jobs for our community. This section mandates the climate department to establish an annual goal for climate jobs to be announced when the city manager proposes the city's annual budget. It also legally establishes a preference for climate jobs when new funding becomes available. Quote, whenever the city becomes eligible for new funding, including new funding due to tax increases, grants from the Texas government, grants from the United States government, grants from private entities, contracts, or other funding opportunities, the city manager shall ensure that such funds are used to create climate jobs and associated training programs. This section establishes a mechanism to transition current city employees to take on climate work, while including a provision that protects existing workers in local government Quote, this requirement shall not be construed to encourage elimination of any existing city employee. Rather, the city manager shall identify opportunities to transition existing personnel into new positions with equal or superior pay and benefits that would advance the city's climate policy. The city's buying power of nearly half a billion dollar budget every year is very significant. This purchasing power can encourage climate-friendly contractors or it can prioritize more polluting. The climate jobs section also includes a preference for contractors who advance the city's climate policy.
Section 9.8 mandates that the city of El Paso actively promote solar generation, filling in a void which is desperately needed in our community. The city would be legally required to create an annual solar power generation plan, which includes a feasibility analysis to describe how the city can develop internal capacity to generate energy for the city through solar power. These yearly plans will demonstrate in detail facts and figures what is glaringly obvious. El Paso has overwhelming solar potential, which it is currently wasting under the control of El Paso Electric. These studies will serve as a baseline justification for a movement's push for more clean energy. Currently, El Paso City Council is at the mercy of profit-motivated El Paso Electric corporate engineers, who tell them what is technological, technologically possible and what isn't. Centers El Paso has sat through countless meetings where El Paso Electric spewed tired, debunked myths about solar generation. They would have us believe that solar generation is a fantasy, but these yearly generation plans would prove them incorrect. Solar is easy and feasible. This section also calls for the city of El Paso's public buildings to install rooftop solar. Quoting directly from the charter, the city manager shall establish and maintain policies that encourage the development of rooftop solar power generation capacity within the city of El Paso. These policies shall encourage development of rooftop solar power generation using city facilities and require both new buildings and retrofitted buildings to include solar power generation capacity whenever feasible. Importantly, this section also establishes renewable energy goals which are independent from El Paso Electric and which are much more aggressive. Again, quoting directly from the charter, the city of El Paso shall employ all available methods to require that energy use within the city is generated by clean, renewable energy, with the goals of requiring 80% clean renewable energy by 2030 and 100% clean renewable energy by 2045. Within one year of the adoption of this climate policy, the city manager and climate director shall produce a plan for the city to achieve this renewable energy goal. In de developing this plan, the city shall include consideration of public transportation, solar power generation at city facilities, and energy efficiency of city buildings. The city manager and climate director shall provide a joint annual report to the city council to chart progress towards these goals. There are two main reasons why this provision is a radical transformation and a step towards El Paso's Green New Deal. First, these clean energy goals are a new and welcome development for the city of El Paso. Previous to this, the city did not even have a timeline for phasing out fossil fuels. Sure, the city had vague plans for increasing renewables, but up until now, it has been completely reliant on El Paso Electric. According to El Paso Electric's own internal documents, the year 2060 will roll along and they will still have seven fracked gas plants online, including three turbines in Chaparral. If the climate department enforces these climate goals, it will legally force El Paso Electric to retire their gas plants earlier than their own business plan dictate. The second reason why these renewable energy goals are transformational is that the climate charter proactively prevents greenwashing. The figures of 80% renewable by 2030 and 100% by 2045 should sound familiar. El Paso Electric's greenwashing claims they'll achieve, quote, 80% carbon-free energy by 2035 and the pursuit of 100% decarbonization of our generation portfolio by 2045. However, by studying their gas plant retirement timelines, we've established that this is an intentional misdirection by El Paso Electric and the utility uses gas hydrogen to justify this lie. Well, if we accomplish the climate charter, 
El Paso Electric will be legally prevented from claiming that their gas hydrogen is clean renewable energy. Section 9.10 is perhaps one of the most powerful provisions of the Climate Charter. It instructs our local government to actively use its authority to democratize our utility grid, abolishing El Paso Electric's corporate profit structure with a municipal-run democratic utility grid accountable to the community. The section reads, The City of El Paso shall employ all available efforts to convert El Paso Electric to municipal ownership. In consultation with the climate director, the city manager shall provide the city council with an annual report to describe the feasibility of converting El Paso Electric into a municipal electric company, including any actions required to advance this objective. This provision is so powerful for our community that if it was established during the J.P. Morgan buyout negotiations, it would have legally prevented the merger. During the negotiations of the J.P. Morgan buyout, the franchise agreement, or the contract which determines the relationship between the city of El Paso and El Paso Electric was opened up. If our city council was brave and if our city attorney did not vehemently defend El Paso Electric, we could have had the opportunity to democratize our grid then. With this provision in place, our local government will now be mandated to, quote, employ all available efforts to democratize our grid. The first episode of this series was called Fossil Fuel Dictatorship in El Paso to highlight the sheer powerlessness we have in our electric grid. We simply have no power in El Paso Electric's corporate boardrooms where they dictate exactly how much pollution our lungs are forced to breathe in order for them to make profit. But section 9.10 can be the beginning of the end for this corporate tyranny. It can be the beginning of our community's control over our electric grid and our destiny. Living in a desert region with limited water supply and dangerous heat waves makes section 9.11 particularly important. It would prioritize climate disaster mitigation, preparedness, and response. Quote, The City of El Paso shall undertake all necessary efforts to prepare city infrastructure to withstand extreme weather conditions and ensure uninterrupted provision of basic services and utilities to city residents. Section 9.12 would be another blow for the Permian Basin and another important protection to our community's resources. The section relates to water conservation. The charter reads, quote, the city of El Paso shall not sell or transfer any water for purposes of fossil fuel industry activities outside of the city limits or otherwise allow any city water to be used for such purposes. One of the most dangerous aspects of fracking as a method of extracting gas and oil is the terrifyingly high amounts of water that is wasted in the process. As we described in the previous episode, the oil and gas industry in the Permian wastes a criminal 
amount of water each year in order to prop up the water-intensive oil and gas extraction process, known as fracking. According to a study by Earthworks, an average of six barrels of wastewater is produced for every barrel of oil in the Permian. In the whole of Texas, oil and gas wells have produced more than 26 million barrels of wastewater every single day. A tragic aspect of the billion barrels of water that are used for fracking is the fact that the usage of this water permanently toxifies the water. These are millions of barrels of water which no longer and should no longer be introduced into the hydraulic water cycle because they have been contaminated with radioactive material and unidentified industry secret toxins. The Permian Basin currently pumps out 5 million barrels of oil per day. This extreme number is expected to double by 2030. This means that by 2030, the industry might require up to 60 million barrels of water per day. As water sources in West Texas dry up, the fracking industry will want to turn to El Paso to prop up the industry. Section 9.12 would legally prohibit the city of El Paso's water to be used for this fracking frenzy. Section 9.13 of the Charter aims to eliminate the impediments El Paso Electric creates to disincentivize rooftop solar energy for its customers. The Charter reads, quote, The city shall not impose any fees, fines, or other financial or non-financial burdens that limit the purchase, use, or generation of renewable energy. Any such fees, fines, and other burdens in existence at the time this Charter Amendment takes effect are hereby null and void, including, but not limited, to interconnection fees. The 100-megawatt Hecate solar facility achieved a U.S. record-low electricity price of $0.01 cent per kilowatt-hour. But... Unfortunately for El Paso, this cheap electricity can only be allocated for El Paso Electric customers in New Mexico. El Paso Electric only planned for this facility when forced by the policies related to the New Mexico Renewable Energy Act. In addition, the New Mexico policy led to the opening of the Buenavista solar farm in Santa Teresa, New Mexico, which has 100 megawatts with a 50 megawatt battery storage, also allocated to New Mexico customers only. These two facilities did not fully fulfill El Paso Electric's requirements under New Mexico law. EPE then added 70 megawatt total to these facilities Hecate 2 and Buena Vista 2. These facilities, which lower overall electricity rates, are only allocated to New Mexico customers. And it demonstrates that renewable energy commitment established by city law is imperative, rather than a loose quote-unquote pledge that will not enforce the utility to act in the best interest of El Paso in terms of sustainability or cost. 
This inequity in terms of state policy also translates to rooftop solar. El Paso Electric customers in Texas are required to pay a $30 minimum bill if they have rooftop solar. When a non-rooftop solar EPE customer in Texas pays an $8.25 per month customer charge. These minimum bill charges throw off the economics of a home rooftop facility for community members in El Paso. This differs starkly from El Paso Electric's New Mexico customers who are not required to pay a minimum bill due to New Mexico state law disallowing such a requirement, significantly reducing the payback period for residential rooftop solar. The $30 minimum bill is allowed under Texas state law, but is not within the norm of other municipally owned utilities in Texas, such as Austin or San Antonio, which requires the same customer charge whether its ratepayers have rooftop solar or not. Essentially, El Paso Electric is punishing its customers that opt to take advantage of the record solar resource in our region simply because it can, and because it increases their profits. The utility claims that this is due to customers with rooftop solar not paying equally for maintenance of the grid. But this is exactly why customers pay a customer charge in the first place, which is equal to the customers in Austin or San Antonio. Section 9.14 relates to the Climate Commission, and it focuses on bringing community involvement to enforce the integrity of the Climate Charter. Quote, The Climate Commission exists for the purposes of overseeing the implementation and fulfillment of the city's climate policy and related provisions of this article. It shall be the duty of the Commission to, number one, recommend to the Council adoption of legislation and policy which will advance the city's climate policy and other related charter provisions, and, number two, investigate matters concerning the city's implementation and fulfillment of the climate policy and related charter provisions. With a total of nine commission members, the committee can serve as an avenue through which the soul and spirit of the climate charter is maintained and protected from the corporate influence of El Paso Electric. It is designed to keep the climate director closely connected to our community movement. Currently, the city of El Paso has a toothless, weak, committee which, in theory, assists the city council on how to implement a transition to renewable energy. It is called the Regional Renewable Energy Advisory Council, and it is a perfect example of how El Paso Electric has captured the current local regulatory system. While this council, acronym REAC, is composed of committed community climate champions volunteering their spare time to push the city to increase renewable energy usage, 
the council is ultimately controlled by El Paso Electric. Sunrise El Paso has participated in many REAC meetings. The meetings are flooded with El Paso Electric employees, lobbyists, and lawyers. El Paso Electric is even considered a member of this council. And El Paso Electric behaves the way you would expect. They consistently obstruct the community's concrete solutions for renewable energy and spew their corporate propaganda, which community members have spent hours debunking. If concrete policy solutions do make it out of REAC, City Council can simply and outright ignore the policy recommendation. The difference between REAC and the Climate Charter highlights the importance of this political moment. REAC has absolutely no legal authority over El Paso Electric or City Council. While the best arguments and research can be conducted here, it ultimately amounts to no leverage over polluters. The Climate Charter, however, is different in this respect. Our political framework creates legal and political community leverage, which can be applied against our enemies to reach the goals that we seek. Unlike REAC and unlike current City of El Paso quote-unquote sustainability initiatives, our charter does not construct the naive illusion that the community and its oppressors can happily sit down in a meeting and hash out their differences in a civil and respectful way. We do not live in this fantasy. El Paso Electric poisons us for profit. To address this situation, we need action, force, and leverage over our utility. While the Climate Charter is innovative, unique, and powerful, it is admittedly not the policy framework of our wildest dreams. Really, if it were up to us, the Charter would immediately and outright abolish El Paso Electric as a corporation, and it would automatically mandate the shutting down of all gas plants and the refinery. But contrary to the propaganda of the right wing, the state of Texas is actually primarily founded on big government overreach. The right-wing political project of the state of Texas aggressively impedes on the autonomy and democracy of local communities to ram through corporations' profit interests. For example, in 2015, the community of Denton, Texas, passed a ballot initiative which banned fracking in a city which was majority Republican. The state of Texas responded with big government overreach. The Texas House passed HB 40, which made it illegal for local governments to ban fracking. This infamous ban on banning fracking 
is an example of how local governments are consistently under attack by the state and federal agencies captured by industry. This political landscape doesn't leave local governments totally defenseless, though. Much can still be done. But this Texas political landscape did inform how we crafted the climate charter. We created something that would withstand interventions from the state of Texas. I talk with Mike Siegel from the progressive group Ground Game Texas to explore these dynamics. For this segment of the podcast, we are um, lucky to be joined by Mike Siegel. Mike Siegel was a critical part of this program and the creation of the political framework that we have created here. And we are very excited to have you on the podcast here, Mike. Um, Could you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Can you tell us about um, your experience running for Congress? why you ran as a Green New Deal and Medicare for All candidate. Sure. Sounds good. Well, great to be with you, Miguel. Um, so yeah, I'm Mike Siegel. Uh, I've worked as a public school teacher, a civil rights lawyer, as a city attorney. And then now I'm the political director of Ground Game Texas, which is a statewide political organization uh, focused on using progressive issues as a way to activate voters and get people engaged in politics. Um, And so for me, uh, my path to this moment and working with Sunrise Movement El Paso on ground game to push for the climate charter, uh, I think the most recent activity was running for Congress. So I ran for Congress. I was the Democratic nominee in a congressional district that stretches uh, from Austin to Houston. It's the 10th congressional district, although it's been redrawn for the next map. But the current office holder is Michael McCall, who's one of the wealthiest members of Congress and the person who has more money invested in oil and gas Uh, than any other member of Congress, House, or Senate. Extremely, obscenely wealthy guy and firmly in the pocket of oil and gas. And, you know, I ran twice. I was the Democratic nominee twice and and through really a grassroots campaign that built a strong movement, you know, unions, uh, grassroots activists, the Sunrise Movement, all sorts of constituencies. uh, We helped turn what was previously a safe uh, safe Republican seat, uh, a place where McCall, the Republican, was winning 20 or 30% each election. And we turned that into a real battleground. And and I think for me, the key to success was leaning into progressive issues, issues that folks thought, well, you can't run on Medicare for all in Texas. You can't run on a Green New Deal in Texas. But for me, that was the key because by stating strong demands, by fighting for a living wage, for housing for all, for a Green New Deal, uh, that really helped activate a lot of people who previously didn't care about electoral politics in the area that I was running in. And in particular, the Green New Deal was a really important demand for my campaign. Um, I was running in a district that basically included a a longstanding coal plant, Fayette Coal Plant in Fayette County, that is owned by a combination of the city of Austin and the state of Texas through the Lower Colorado River Authority. And this is a uh, coal plant that's been there for 40 years. And, And part of my campaign was about telling the story of this coal plant and how it's negatively impacted the environment and the community and how transforming that facility and, and turning it into something uh, that, that is part of the renewable energy economy could be this amazing opportunity that creates lots of jobs and a healthier life for a lot of people. And, and 
just a brief snapshot of this Fayette coal plant. I mean, after it was built, uh, you know, it was surrounded by beautiful pecan orchards. I, I met a person who owned it, owned the oldest pecan orchard in that part of Texas. It used to be the largest pecan orchard in the state. It was studied by Texas A&M. But every year after they built that coal plant, you know, as acid rain brought those, uh, you know, toxic chemicals down into the soil, the, the pecan orchard dwindled more and more. And the owner of this, this plant, who's a third generation pecan farmer, this guy Harvey, uh, developed a brain tumor that was likely from environmental contamination. And so not only did he, he uh, you know, lose this amazing family heirloom, you know, hundreds of acres of pecan orchards because the, the trees ultimately died from the acid rain, but he himself got terribly sick and he saw his neighbors getting cancer and asthma and all these other uh, terrible illnesses. And so we kind of use this demand to close the Fayette coal plant and create jobs, you know, building something that's healthy for the community and the surrounding region. We made that a core part of the campaign. And, and for me, that was really uh, important. It made me feel like that through the campaign, we were not just running for office, that they were advocating for something that would really benefit the community. And, and through that work, I helped, um, you know, build some, some major alliances among, you know, local folks in the rural community where the coal plant was, city of Austin environmental activists, uh, union members that wanted to envision what green jobs could look like and, and the Sunrise Movement. And that was really uh, the genesis of my relationship with the Sunrise Movement, working on this closed Fayette Coal campaign. And that of course led me to reach out to y'all uh, with this climate charter work. Awesome, thank you for that, Mike. And it's, it's deeply appreciated that you come from a background of actually being in the trenches, being uh, fighting for, for frontline communities against corporations that in essence are violent towards community members for the sake of profit, right? Um, so can you tell us about um, how you came to realize the relationship between the state, the government, uh, whether it's at a state level, whether it's at a federal level, the relationship between the state, corporations and the community? Well, for me, it was really brought home. I, before I ran for Congress, I was a city worker for the city of Boston. I worked as an assistant city attorney. And uh, I was a part of a number of fights where, you know, voters in Austin, activists in Austin, were pushing for progressive reforms only to uh, win the reform in the short term, but have the state of, of Texas through the legislature basically preempt and stop what we were doing. And, uh, you know, the, the example that I think is still a terrible memory for a lot of us is when Austin won a paid sick leave ordinance. And this is something that would have regulated all the private businesses in the city of Austin, uh, people who employed you know, about 15 or more employees, and will require that, that uh, workers earn sick leave over time. So that uh, if they got sick, they wouldn't have to go to work. They could go to the doctor, they could rest, they could get better. And this is a reform that is extremely popular. You know, If you ask people across Texas, rural, urban, suburban, do you think workers should get paid sick leave? I think it's got like an 80% popularity. And, and we passed it in Austin. Uh, activists uh, were working on the city of San Antonio, the city of Dallas. It was gonna be a reform that was gonna spread across the state. And before we could implement the ordinance, we were sued and, and the folks who were suing us were funded by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, some, some NFIB, some corporation or formation like that which is really just a front for the fast food lobby, you know, the McDonald's of the world, who don't wanna pay a single penny more to their workers because they wanna keep all that money for profits. And so just this idea 
that um, you have a demand that's so popular that Republicans want it, Democrats want it, liberals, conservatives want it, that the city votes for it, it implements it, but we still can't get it passed because these extremely wealthy interests uh, own the legislature. They can convince the Texas legislature to subsequently pass a law that prevents cities from doing this. And they can also pay for judges to run campaigns and these judges make terrible decisions that prevent cities like Austin from taking you know, protective action for its, for its workers. And so that's just one example in many where I've just seen government distorted uh, against the needs of the people, whether you're talking about clean water, whether you're talking about public education, whether you're talking about safe working conditions, uh, a living wage. There are a number of issues across the country, uh, student debt relief, marijuana legalization. I mean, a huge proportion of people want these issues. Like, why don't we have legal marijuana in this country? Well, the short answer is big pharmaceutical companies uh, don't want to lose out on their market share to sell Prozac and other, you know, uh, so-called legal pharmaceuticals. So, you know, my experience, uh, Miguel, in a lot of ways, uh, this is just a recurring theme in my life, how I've seen whether it's a tax on public education, a tax on our air and water, uh, a tax on, on workers. It's just, uh, unfortunately, the system of capitalism, um, there's, a, there's an inherent contradiction between capitalism and democracy. And, and right now, unfortunately, it seems like in a lot of ways, capitalism is beating democracy. Right, and, and the way I, I think of that, I mean, we saw that firsthand in our faces with both of the campaigns that we helped um, run to for the climate locally, right? The um, campaign to prevent JP Morgan from buying out and, and corporately dominating our electric grid and uh, the fight against the Newman 6 gas plant expansion, those, those were clear examples of, the, of state agencies on a federal, state, and local level being essentially the bodyguards of polluters. That, that's, how, that's how I've come to think of it. And, and I want to hear if, if you think that's an accurate uh, assessment of like these being the state being this um, midway point uh, this buffer that protects capital corporations, polluters, um, instead of being advocates for the public. Do, would, you, would you agree with that? Certainly. I mean, um, we only have the, the barest traces of real democratic control of our government, right? We have enough of a, a shell, uh, you know, through the Texas Constitution, Texas laws, and the U.S. Constitution, we have this appearance of popular control of, of public resources, but in so many ways, the system is captured. Um, I mean, you know, one of the, the biggest calamities to befall the state, you know, the terrible freeze that killed uh, countless people that caused immense property destruction, loss, loss of economic activity, loss of work, uh, catastrophic freeze in the state of Texas that was exacerbated and, and probably uh, could, could have been prevented, injuries could have been prevented in many ways, but for us having a failed regulatory system over our electric grid, right? Uh, the, the whole electric grid is operated to maximize Wall Street profits so that we have this peak demand pricing when everybody needs to turn on the heat or in the summer, when everyone needs to turn on the AC, that's when these folks, the Kelsey Warrens of the world, the people that, that operate the pipelines, that operate the grid, they make billions off of our need, of our popular need. So instead of a grid being operated to, to make sure everyone has the bare necessities of life, the grid is operated to maximize corporate profits. And then 
even though this terrible thing happens where for seven days, a lot of us don't have electricity, don't have uh, access to, to heat or basic services, people are extremely frustrated, angry, you know, pissed off at their officials. And even though beyond that, uh, a lot of people now are suffering higher electric bills every month, including people who are income restricted, you know, are barely making it as it is, and their electric bills have gone up 20 30 $40 a month. Despite that situation, in the last legislative session, not a single reform was passed that would improve our grid, that would improve the reliability of services, uh, that would make sure that uh, the people who operate the grid are, are held accountable for keeping people alive. None of that happened. Instead, the Berkshire Hathaways of the world, you know, the Warren Buffetts, the, the billionaire class, uh, bought our legislators and forced them to pass additional protections for natural gas and, and other, you know, electric generators who were largely responsible for the crisis. And so, you know, that's just, just one more example of how, you know, we're, we're barely hanging on, even if, if you're aware that our democracy is weak, like it's just, it's hanging on by a thread. And every day it gets more precarious, whether it's what the Supreme Court is doing, whether what, what the Republicans are doing through Donald Trump and others. I mean, this is a very precarious time in, in our society. And, and it's good to be aware of that. And, you know, also uh, hopefully not to be overwhelmed to realize that we can fight back. And that's something that really excites me about the climate charter is that we're taking power locally. We're creating autonomy within our community. And so talking about these um, corporate fail-safes in government, right? These um, policies that are in place to protect corporations, to protect their profits instead of protecting health and the people. You mentioned preemption earlier in, in our chat. Can you talk about how state and federal preemption factored into our process of drafting this climate charter. Something that I want to emphasize here as well is that this climate charter was drafted um, by us, by your expertise, Mike, as well as the on-the-ground expertise and experience of Sunrise organizers that have fought gas plants, that have fought this uh, JP Morgan buyout. And so we created this very unique piece of policy. How did corporate fail-safes preemptions factor into our drafting this, this piece of proposal? And for example, why couldn't we just simply draft the outright and immediate shutdown of gas plants and the refinery as much as we want to? Right. I mean, the core question is, what authority does the city have? Right. And, and, you know, by extension, what what power do El Paso voters have to actually affect these issues? And, you know, in the United States, we have this kind of supremacy idea. So the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution says that the United States Constitution is the highest law of the land. And then underneath the U.S. Constitution is federal law. And then underneath that is the Texas Constitution and Texas law. And so you don't get to El Paso power you know, the city of El Paso's authority until you deal with these other layers above at the federal and state level. And I think the core thing for folks to realize in the environmental movement, uh, there have been some amazing victories over the last several decades in the environmental movement, whether you're talking about the Endangered Species Act, um, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, 
these were hard fought national movements that won major policies. But unfortunately, over time, these amazing laws like the Clean Water Act that protects our water have been turned on their head. So instead of creating power for people who want clean water, instead they pr provide protection for corporations. And so one way I can explain it is think about the Fayette coal plant that I was trying to close uh, in Fayette County, rural Texas. Uh, the Fayette coal plant gets a water permit. Now it's a water permit under the Clean Water Act, this amazing law. But under the Clean Water Act, what it says is the permit shall be issued by the federal government unless the state government creates a similar agency. So in Texas, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality administers the permits under the Clean Water Act. Okay, then within that framework, who are the commissioners of the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality? Who are the people who have policy authority? It's Greg Abbott, it's the governor's appointees. These are the people who give the governor a million dollar donations at one time. And then they are then given the ability to preside over the organization that issues all the permits for all the coal plants in the state. And so what do they do? They make the absolute minimum requirements to get a water permit. You know, uh, a very simple application with not much backup. Uh, okay, you gotta do a little bit of water testing, but we're not gonna make sure that the place you're testing water is the place where the pollution is likely to be. So there's this appearance of regulation and uh, accountability, but in practice, it's, it's Greg Abbott's oil and gas donors who are administering the permits. And so unfortunately, because of this concept of preemption and supremacy, like federal law is supreme. Okay, federal law basically gives Greg Abbott the right to approve water permits. And, and that means that as the city of El Paso, we can't write a law that contradicts the Water Act, the Clean Water Act. And so we can't create a separate permitting regime for water. The same applies for air. The same applies for utilities regulation itself. That's under state of Texas law, the Public Utilities Commission. Again, a state body where Greg Abbott appoints the decision makers. And so our starting point essentially in El Paso with this charter is that in terms of actual laws that we would want, the vast majority, maybe 99% of them are not available to us because the federal and state governments hold most of the keys. So that got us to, well, what could we do? And so, uh, and, and we can talk about this more, Miguel, but if I had to summarize it, I mean, one, through the charter, we do draw some very important sh uh, sharp lines, uh, enforceable lines. We say, whenever there's gonna be a new building, uh, in the city government, we're gonna put solar panels on top. And from here on, we're not gonna sell any city water for fracking. Those are two examples of like sharp lines we were able to draw. Because essentially we're making decisions with city resources. The city can decide who we're gonna sell water to. The city can decide what we're gonna put on top of our buildings. Then beyond those sharp lines, we also create a, a very important process for ongoing engagement. You know, every time, the city makes a major decision that impacts the climate, they're gonna to have to produce a report that analyzes, okay, does this reduce emissions? Does this advance renewable energy? Does it discriminate against black or Latino or working class people? Does it advance climate justice? There's gonna be a report every time there's a major development, a major purchase. And so that creates opportunities that otherwise might've gone quietly, uh, you know, swept under the rug in city government, like whenever they 
expand what the Marathon oil refinery is doing on a right-of-way permit. Under the climate charter, there's going to be scrutiny. So it creates organizing opportunities. And then I think the last part, which is um, symbolic in some ways, but it's a statement of intent. We're getting tens of thousands of El Pasoans to sign onto a document that says, you know what, we want climate action. And that matters, right? That sends a message to local officials and, and the people who are elected you know, at the state and federal level to represent El Paso. And hopefully that also sends a message to other communities that are organizing, whether it's uh, you know, Laredo, Brownsville, Corpus Christi, San Antonio, Houston. Hey, y'all can take control of your local government in the same way. And then if enough of us do this, if this movement for local climate charters catches on, then in the aggregate, that could have a huge impact. Definitely. And this, this discussion of what's legally possible, um, I don't want you know anyone listening to think, well, there's nothing we can do about it. As you've mentioned, Mike, all of these national uh, federal level frameworks are all a result of political organizing, right? I'm not a lawyer, but let me know if this makes sense. Most of the laws that we have in place regarding the environment, they're not inevitable and permanent until the rest of time. They can be changed. They can be um, updated and they're a result of political action. No doubt. And we know the other side. I mean, how did it get to be that the Clean Water Act essentially became a layer of protection for big oil and big, big gas? It's because since that moment of that tremendous victory, you know, it's probably 40 some years ago, you know, Sierra Club, all these national groups lobbied for it. Since that moment of victory, the other side, the oil and gas lobbyists have been chiseling away bit by bit, you know, grain of sand by grain of sand until now it's this Swiss cheese weak uh, infrastructure for, for environmental protection. And so, you know, they have organized money, organized capital, but with organized people, we, we can exert that same power to strengthen the existing laws or to replace them with something better. Definitely, definitely. And, and just to conclude this thought, um, what, in my, in my opinion, what we have created here with the climate charter is a weapon, a tool for movements. At the end of the day, like if we don't have a robust grassroots climate movement locally, we won't be able to use this charter to its fullest extent. So that's something that I, I want our listeners to consider. This is a tool for you all. This is turning the local state apparatus on its head to say, you are no longer a bodyguard for polluters. You are a weapon for us to use against polluters, for us to use against these corporations that are poisoning our lungs and deciding that their profits are better for the climate, are, are more important than the climate and more important than our health. Anything else you think we should add? No, that's right. I mean, th this climate charter, I mean, there's some things that are uh, self-effectuating, you know, simply by passing the charter, we accomplish a couple of things. But the most important thing it does is it creates opportunities to continue to organize. And it, it creates this spotlight that if folks take advantage, if y'all start following the city council meetings, maybe if we can convince some organizations to, to assign staff, to talk to city council members, to make sure that they're implementing the policy, okay, 
this big housing development is coming up. How can we protect water at the same time? Uh, you know, this other initiative to clean up this polluted facility is coming up. How can we create green jobs, climate jobs, put people to work? I mean, we're going to have to continue to make demands on the government. But I, I think it's it's extremely powerful in the way that it it opens it up. It opens up the space. The climate charter makes a lot of things possible that previously are beyond people's imagination. But now suddenly, oh, they're going to have to like accept our questions. You know, every year they're going to have to do a report. Can we municipalize, uh, basically put in the public hands the electric utility? We're, we're creating opportunities to ask questions. And then it's up to you know, the whole community to, to keep pushing to make sure we get real things done. Environmental justice organizer Vandana Shiva reminds us, quote, real intelligence is what makes us live. Life is intelligence. Intelligence is democracy. When discussing the issue of the climate crisis in the U.S., we are rarely provided with the right of democracy. Sure, there is a superficial level of choice between Democrats and Republicans, but democracy should be deeper than a two-party system. Democracy should be direct. Democracy should entire our workplaces, our electric grids, our transportation systems, and our local government. That is one of the most liberating aspects of this climate charter project. We aim to solve the crisis of the climate with local and direct democracy. But we need your help. We cannot do this alone. Thank you for listening to our three-part story of the El Paso Climate Charter. We hope this political education project helped you gain a deeper understanding of our local climate movement and a richer understanding of how the Climate Charter can serve as a weapon for community liberation. By May 31st, we need to gain 35,000 signatures to support the Climate Charter in order to get the policy on the ballot this November. Now that you've finished the series, we ask you to please sign the Climate Charter, which you can find at bit.ly slash epclimatecharter. Sign up as a volunteer to help us gain more signatures. You can also get plugged into a volunteer program called the Climate Charter Victory Network. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sunrise El Paso and Climate El Paso. Until next time, with love and rage. Mm -hmm.